Yeah, Father, we are so thankful that you sent Jesus. Lord, that we can be assured of being cleansed from our sin because of the sufficiency of what he has done. Father, help us to be willing to receive that. Lord, help us to humble ourselves, to admit, Lord, that we can't save ourselves, but that you've made the way through your son, Jesus. And Father, we pray that for us as your people here this afternoon. We pray, God, that you'd make that clear to us. You'd, uh, you'd, you'd make that fresh in our hearts again uh, today. You'd convince us again today of the greatness of your grace, of the sufficiency of your grace. And I pray, Father, that for us here, I pray that for our whole church family, and we pray that, Lord, for all the believers in this city. Lord, that, that the believers in Norwich, Lord, would be convinced of your grace. Uh, Lord, and they'd be transformed by your grace. Maybe those that are learning to walk in, in and pursue holiness, being set apart for you and your purposes because of your grace. Their hearts would be established by your grace. And Father, we also want to just lift up uh, this world, Lord, that it's yours. So I just thank you again, uh, Father, that your word is clear that the world is yours. Lord, we know that uh, the world uh, lays under the, the sway or the influence of the evil one, but it's still your world. You've bought it at a price. You created it. You bought it at a price. You're redeeming it. You'll one day renew it. And so, Father, we, we just pray, Lord, for uh, we think of, of, of those in in Greece right now, fighting all these forest fires, uh, the difficulties that are there. And Father, we ask that you would intervene there. Father, would you protect the firefighters that are there from all over uh, Europe, really? Would you protect those firefighters? Or would you give them wisdom? Would you have mercy on that place and send the right wind direction and the right rain, Lord? Would you please cease that, stop those fires, Lord? And Lord, we, just, we do pray again, Lord, that you would use that to bring many people to yourself. We pray for those in Greece, Lord, that have a cultural assent to who you are, but don't know you personally. May they know you. May they know you, Lord. And may you use this crisis to bring many people to yourself, Lord. Strengthen the believers there in Greece during this time. And Father, we, we also uh, just want to continue to pray, Lord, for what's happening in other parts of the world. We, we think of... Uh, Lord, we think of uh, what's happening in the Middle East with Afghanistan, specifically in the unrest that's there. Father, would you please, um, again, strengthen believers there, Lord. Would you help them to know you, Father? We think of South Africa and the, uh, the, the turmoil that's been there, Father. We think of the, all the nations in the world, Lord, that struggle with corrupt governments. And Father, we just confess it's hard to trust governments, but Lord, help us to, to pray for our governments and trust in your sovereign hand over them. That Lord, you hold uh, the heart of the king in your hand and you turn it like a river any way you wish. Help us to believe that, Father, to take you at your word. And Father, we pray as we get into your word together uh, this afternoon, we pray, Father, that you would bless that, Lord, that you would speak to us that you would uh, bring us to that place of, of response and change. Your Holy Spirit would work in a way that only he can do. Please, Father, we, we pray you do this. We pray a blessing on Rob, who's going to bring the word. And we just thank you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so I'm really happy to introduce uh, to you guys online uh, my good friend Rob Dingman. He's the pastor of the Calvary Chapel in Twickenham. And when the Lord called our family here, uh, man, almost 18 years ago, uh, we first got to serve with Rob and his lovely wife Joni and their girlies uh, for about 15 months. And it was, a, it was a wonderful, wonderful time. And I'm thankful that we've been able to stay good friends and brothers ever since. And so as I warned the first service, I warn you, Rob has a very unique sense of humor. That's all I'll say about that. <laughs> but we love him, and he's a great Bible teacher, so make him feel welcome. Rob Dingman.
that. Well, thank you for being gracious. There's so much more you could have said, and you didn't. And we all appreciate you for that. It's really uh, a pleasure to be with you all today. And I'm trusting that God's going to bless us. Um, I'm going to teach from 1 Peter 5 today. And please open up your Bibles there. 1 Peter chapter 5. And the scriptures that I want to read are in chapter 5, but I'm going to read from chapter 4, verse 12, just to give us a context for how I'm going to teach this. It says in verse 12 of chapter 4, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders, yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. So let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you reveal yourself to us in your word. And through your word, we can see the unseen God. We can endure as seeing him who is un invisible. And we, we want and we need perseverance and endurance. We need strengthening and refreshing. We need the heart to continue until the end. We don't want to lose the plot. We don't want to be so distracted by insignificant things that we miss the one important thing. And so we pray that you would bless us today 
that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit, that you would do a perfect work, that you would write your word on our hearts and make it part of us. As we wait upon you, we pray that you would refresh us and strengthen us. Bless our time of worship now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've seen that the whole earth is headed to judgment. That's sobering. Everyone who's ever lived is going to see God. And they're going to know who God really is with no ambiguity. Because God sitting on that throne of judgment is the Lord Jesus Christ and no other. So we believe in the judgment to come. And because we believe in that, we want to live in a way that pleases God right now. That we see that judgment coming and we say, I want to stand in that judgment. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want to hear, what was that? What were you thinking? Does that ever scare you? I get scared. You know, I have to handle holy things. And it's easy when you handle holy things to become flip about it. And you become a professional, and it applies to everybody else, but you have to apply it to yourself, right? So I'm not speaking as a licensed professional in this. The way to live that is pleasing to Jesus is to be made like him to think as he thinks, to live as he lives. And it means then that we have to submit ourselves completely to his grace to enable us to live like Jesus. It's nothing we're going to accomplish in ourselves. And so Peter wants us all to be humble because when you're humble, then you receive the grace of God. That's what we're looking at. And when we think about our salvation, it's all from God's grace. And that means God favoring us. You think about who does he favor? Who is he favorably disposed to? Like, I could use this, and God says, oh, yeah, sure, here, here, and here's some more. Favor, it's good stuff to have. Well, in Romans, Paul says, for God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. He's quoting from Exodus 34 or 33. And he adds, so then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. It's not me volunteering for God and I want to do something good for God. And God says, well, <laughs> look, Rob, he wants to do something good. Well, don't you just love bald guys? Isn't there something about them that just makes you want to Come here, you. <laughs> but you know, when God says these words to Moses, all of Israel has disqualified itself. Moses has been up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and they come to his brother Aaron and say, well, we don't know who this guy is that brought us up out of Egypt. What's his face? Make first gods. And then Aaron does, and of course everybody says, wahoo, and they offer sacrifices, and then they have a drunken orgy. 
And God says, let me alone, and I'm going to destroy them and make of you a nation greater and, and mightier than they. And Moses says, no, because what are the Egyptians going to say? If you're going to blot them out of your book, blot me out as well. He's making a bold move there, but God doesn't buy it. And he says, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It means it doesn't depend on how grossly forgetful Israel is or disrespectful or any of that stuff. It's because God is having mercy because he's good. That's the basis of Israel's current existence right now in front of Mount Sinai, smoking like a furnace, and God just ready to let them have it. Then he changes his mind. He says, nope, I'm going to have compassion on whom I have compassion. So, you know, God doesn't reward us according to what we've done. We didn't deserve for him to send Jesus to die in our place. We didn't deserve that. And so, we don't deserve eternal life. We don't deserve anything. And our Christian life begins with humbling. When I received Jesus, it was the last thing in the world I wanted to do, but I felt like I had to. And I was embarrassed. Do you remember when you received Jesus? Maybe somebody here hasn't. And, you know, there's a little weirdness about that. C.S. Lewis said when he received Jesus... There was no more dejected sinner in all of England. And so I was embarrassed. I was humiliated. Nobody comes to Jesus. I did good. You just, okay, you got me. And it's funny how that works, it's humiliating. That's how our Christian lives begin. That's how we keep going with our Christian lives. Proud and Christian is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction. And it's gross when you see it, because you do see it, don't you? It's gross. So as we began following Jesus, that's how we continue. We're humbled before God. We receive his grace. Grace demands that you receive more grace. So in John's Gospel, chapter 1, John says, for of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. It's not one time. It's over and over and over And I was reminded about how Barnabas went to Antioch to check out that Gentiles are becoming Christians and pigs are flying. So he sees the grace of God and he's glad and then he teaches them many things. He gives them more grace. We begin in humility and grace. We continue in humility and grace. And... You know, Peter says here in in verse 12 of chapter 5, this is the true grace of God in which you stand. The true grace. We don't want to stand anywhere else for the rest of our lives, right? So why would I lose the plot and run away from receiving grace? Now, Peter says that everyone is to humble themselves before God and one another. And I'm picking this up in verse 5 of 1 Peter 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. It's interesting that where where God comes in, he brings order. And we're not going to despise those people with greater experience and just say, well, because you're old, you're obviously irrelevant. You know, if you've been following the Lord for a long time, you realize, I'm only now just starting to get somewhere. I feel like I've been floundering for so long, and 
you know, I feel like I'm getting to know God. Just like John says in 1 John 2, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm just starting to know God. And then you die. And it all goes with you. Well, but he says likewise here. Have you noticed? Likewise. Like, like who? Like what? And it's the humility that is shown by a pastor. Because he's been talking to the pastors, the elders. This is an era when pastor, elder, overseer is kind of all the same thing. Later on, it would get differentiated and uh, you got your hierarchies and whatnot. But here it's like it's the guy who looks out for you, the guy who's called to take care of you. You know that a pastor is God's gift to you to get you where you need to be. And evidently, God thinks you need a pastor. Isn't that great? This wasn't your idea, so you don't have to like it. But it is God's idea, and he thinks you need one. So, you know, your wisdom is actually to humble yourself before your pastor because your pastor is humbling himself before God. Being a pastor means being willing for God to use you knowing you are insufficient. You would love to feel wonderfully competent about yourself. Kind of like a brain surgeon who walks in, looks at the patient, goes, we can do this. And you hope he can. You hope he hasn't been practicing with home brain surgery, you know, from Aldi in the back. <laughs> and I wish I could say, you know, that I'm competent like a brain surgeon. But this is what humbles me, is that I am not sufficient. I don't have superpowers. I wasn't born immaculately. I don't glow in the dark. Ask my wife. See, she knows the awful truth. I'm just a guy. And what a guy. <laughs> so I've often asked God, why don't you get somebody competent into this job? Somebody who's got a heart for you, that would help. Somebody who knows how to do the job. Competent. And the funny thing is, I cannot get God to fire me. <laughs> I've given him loads of opportunities. I'm waiting for the pink slip from heaven to come. <laughs> and it never comes. So I have to keep doing this. You know why it's hard to get fired by God? Because God wants to do a work through me so that everybody looks at me and knows there is a God because it can't be him. The guy is such a weirdo. It, it can't happen. There has to be a God. All right? So a pastor is somebody who's willing to take that spot and say, okay, you called me you have to equip me. You have to make me fruitful. And if you don't, show's over. See? Now, that will humble you. It humbles you because you realize it doesn't come from you. It comes from God. Everything you have, all that you are, comes from God. You can take credit for none of it. So the brain surgeon walks away from the job. Everybody says, that was brilliant. And he says, thank you. Because he is brilliant and he knows it. But I walk away and somebody says, well, that was brilliant. And I go, yeah, I know why it was. Because of God. I can never take the credit for it. I used to get really kind of frustrated and disappointed about that. When do I get a little credit? And then I woke up. And I thought, you know, as long as you show up, God, and save me on a regular basis, I don't care anymore. 
just show up, please. Please come down on us by your spirit and do a spiritual work. And I'm okay with that now. Because I can't do my job unless God shows up. Do you see that? So a pastor is somebody who is actually going first in being humble before God and allowing himself to be used by God knowing that he's not sufficient. So you, everybody else, do the same thing. Look at your pastor and realize, man, if he can get saved, I can get saved. That's really what a pastor is there for. I think I'll leave it there. Again, we could say a lot more. But as long as they're all laughing, you get the point, right? So good. But then he says, humble yourselves to one another. It's not just for your pastor to be humble. Everybody is. And this is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than you. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Humility has been grossly misrepresented in the world. That's like the last thing anybody wants to be. What is really admired is the person who, as Friedrich Nietzsche said, wills to power. The Superman. The one who takes and makes and forms. Rah, and he validates himself by doing something. It's not a namby-pamby you know, uh, no, mighty. Everybody goes, ooh, he's somebody, he's something. But humility, what is that? That's just going, oh, I'm nothing. You know, that's, that's kind of despicable. But that's not what humility is about. Humility actually means I don't think about myself, to be honest. I'm not concerned with myself. I'm thinking about everybody else. And so, rather than look after my own interests, I wonder about your interest. I say, are you going to make it? Are you getting what you need to get where you need to be? Because if not, I can help you. I will do what I can to get you there. In our context, getting there means obtaining eternal glory. That's what God has destined us for. Eternal glory, life without end, honor, transformed bodies that cannot sin. This is not our hope. Right? So we're looking for this eternal inheritance that he promised us. Humility says, hey, I'm squared away. I'm going to make it. Are you going to make it? Why not? And the extreme thing is, you know, if I have to lay my life down so that you make it, I'm okay with that. I'm not looking to hold on to this life like this is it. If you don't get your Tesla now, you have missed it. 
Now, the opposite way to think here is just think about yourself. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Conceit is an interesting word. It, it really means to be convinced you are a better person than you really are. So the foundation of pride or arrogance is a lie. I am better than I really am. I'm so convinced of that, I look around the room and I go, me, I'm the best one in the room. And you know what that makes you? Nothing. I, if I get what I need, if I get what I want, doesn't matter to me if anybody makes it. Probably won't. Do I care? Why? Because I'm something, you're nothing. I'm great, you're dust. So I think everybody ought to have a fabulous opinion of me. Okay? Now, in saying this, I'm describing to you the way the devil thinks. Here's a guy who says, you know, being God is about power and it's about beauty. I got power. I got beauty. Why him? I want his position. You know, there wasn't anybody higher than the devil, than God. And the devil says, I want to be more than I am because I think I'm better than I am. He didn't really verbalize it like that, but that's the effect of it. And so he says, I want to be God. I want a will to power. I want the throne. I want everybody to tell me how fabulous I am. And if they don't want to, then I'll beat them. And if that doesn't work, I'll kill them. Now, in Philippians 2, Paul goes on to say that Jesus is humble. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, in Hebrews chapter 1, it says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is who defines God. He says to Philip, have I been with you so long, Philip, and yet you've not known me? If you see me, you have seen the Father. No unearthly glow. No all might. No everywhere at once. But you see humility that says, I can leave all that stuff behind. And I can be born on this little tiny planet in some mother's womb and I can grow up as a normal human being for 30 years. You know, when you're the most high, anywhere from there is an infinite way down. It is the distance between God and everything created is an infinite distance. And yet he crossed it to be like one of us and you know, Jesus is fine. He doesn't have to die. He says, I'm squared away. What about you? I already know you're not going to make it. And I'm going to do everything in my power so that you will obtain eternal life. I'm going to give myself. See, greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus demonstrates that God is humble. It's not something that God does. It's who he is. It is his heart. It is his essential character. God thinks about others. We wouldn't even exist if God hadn't thought about us first before he made the world.
God thinks about others. The devil only thinks about himself. And there's no third way to think. You get that? That makes it really simple in the universe to tell who's who. Well, so we're to humble ourselves before God and others, just like Jesus thought and did. How do you feel? Are you up for that? Just lay down your life for everybody. And you go, gulp? I don't know if I want to do that. Well, a Christian isn't a nice person who doesn't get in your way. That is sort of the the cultural mindset, and even in churches, it's kind of like that too. Let's just be nice. A Christian isn't a nice person. A Christian is godlike. And so what God has really brought us to is something that's not possible. You cannot act and live like Jesus just by being nice. And the only way to do this is to be clothed with Christ just like Peter is alluding to. In verse 5, he says, be clothed with humility. It means to be clothed with the crucifixion of Christ, who prayed for three hours in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. That's what he's praying for. And then we're to be clothed with the resurrection. And that is a new mind, a new heart, a new life. The mind of Christ that says, hey, I'm squared away. I know where I'm going when I die. What about you? Where are you going? I would like to get you where you need to be. Not because I want your money. I want to benefit you because God loves you. And I love you. So, how are you going to get there? The grace of God. Because he gives grace to the humble. You know who the humble is? The person who says, I can't do this. I can't even fake it. I'm not even going to try. Because it's ludicrous. I don't have that kind of heart. So I confess that, and I say, I am absolutely indifferent to this room full of people, and I'm sorry about that. You are much better than me because you care about every single person. Would you please cleanse me continually with your blood and enable me to lay down my life for others? You see, God's going to answer that prayer. He gives grace to the humble. And this is Peter's command in verse 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. That means you're not fighting God like everybody else out there who say, you know what? I'm not going to let God touch my life because what's he going to do with me? Does God have any reasonable idea of what fun is, what a career is, who I ought to marry, what I ought to do with my money? I'm not going to let anything happen to me. I want freedom. I want freedom. I want to be able to do what I want to do. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. Well, when you hand yourself over to God under his mighty hand, you suddenly lose the ability to bargain with God because you don't have any poker chips. You don't have anything to bargain with God about because you're 
You're not size. You ever heard that expression before? That's London in inner city talk. When some little squirt thinks he's hot stuff and he wants to pick a fight with a bigger guy on the street, the big guy just looks at him and says, you ain't size. You know, so go away before I hurt you. <laughs> you ain't size. Well, that's what God is saying to us. You ain't size. And he's not going to deal with you because it doesn't have to. It is total surrender or nothing. Take it or leave it. And if you surrender to God, he wants the whole store, everything. None of this 51% I hold on to. So in case God makes a decision I don't agree with, I'm going to veto the Trinity, man. None of this junk. Nope. So you know the, the short way to say this is in Matthew chapter 6. In verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And then he says in Matthew 6, 31, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So you humble yourself by seeking God's things first. Your highest priority is God's will. Now, funny enough, it's not a drag. It actually frees you up from having to worry about your business. And this is not being, you know, throwing away your sense of responsibility or you're just going to live carelessly. What it means is you have a priority. And as you pursue the right priorities, your life becomes ordered. You can't live in disorder. A disordered system falls apart. That is our world. A seriously disordered system with the wrong priorities and it is disintegrating in real time. So the deal that God is actually proposing is that as we take care of God's business first, he himself will take care of our business. That's a fabulous deal if you have God taking care of the details of your life. Because he can sort all this stuff out better than I can. He's very efficient. I've often thought, you know, this is really dumb. Me working for God. Isn't there a more efficient way of doing things and getting work done? But, you know, there's something going on that's more important than even God accomplishing something. In all this life, you know what? We're learning Christ. And there is nothing more important than learning Christ. Not just a doctrine, but the doctrine that leads us to the person of the Almighty God, Jesus Christ. To know him is eternal life. If we get out of this life not having learned Christ, we have missed everything. And that's why we don't necessarily live triumphant, successful lives. Because Jesus did not lead a triumphant, victorious, successful life. that he was crucified unjustly in weakness. All of his followers deserted him. 
One of them betrayed him. He was hated, mocked. And see, if we're going to learn Christ, we're going to learn these things. This is what Peter's talking about. Well, the opposite to God's will first is my will first. And you know, I'm never going to get there. You won't either. If you try to get all your ducks lined up in a row and then weld them so they cannot change, you'll never get there. It's like the guy that rolls the stone to the top of the hill, and as soon as he does that, he can get out of hell. Oh, but the stone rolled down again. So let's keep rolling the stone. Oh, it comes down again. Futility. We'll never get our lives sorted. It'll never happen. And we live then in this disorder. So no man can serve two masters. We either serve him or ourselves full stop. So putting God's business first is what it means to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Is everybody with me? Now, I've got some practical ways to do this. One of them is that you give priority in your life to knowing God and His will for your life. It's no use following Jesus and remaining ignorant of what He wants. So this is why you have what is known as a quiet time. This is actually a place where God orders your life and gives you the orders and the directions and empowers and refreshes. This daily exercise of discipline is where we learn Christ. It happens while nobody's looking. But as we give first attention to these things, we're going to find that order in our lives spill out and organize our entire existence so that we don't live in chaos. Would you like to live in order in a disordered world? This is what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. So you have to have a priority of learning Christ. Are you doing that? Are you pursuing learning about him? And the way to do it, he says, my words should abide in you. And you should be reading your Bible and meditating so that you know him. And I say meditating because I don't know another way in the Bible that, as Paul says in Romans 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Unless our minds are renewed, we won't even recognize it. We'll just see the will of God drive up and we'll go, whew, that looks like it hurts. No thanks. And on drives the will of God. And here comes not the will of God. Oh, that looks good. I vote for that. But you know how that turns out, right? All right. Here's another way to seek first the kingdom of God. You give priority to coming to church. It's been very hit and miss during this pandemic, and a lot of people's church-going muscles have atrophied. Like, why do we need this? Here's why you need this. God has ordained that one day out of seven be made holy, the time itself is sacred. And the purpose of it is to give you rest in a holy way. And that is to gather with the believers and be refreshed in your spirit. Now, yes, we're not Jewish. And yes, the day has changed. Well, Jesus changed it, so I think that's okay. He has the power to change it from the seventh day to the first day of the week, which is what this is. And we don't have to be legalistic about it because pastors have to work the hardest they work on the day that everybody else is supposed to take off. 
And yet, the priests profane the Sabbath and are blameless. So I take my Sabbath some other day. But I'm serious about it. You know why? If you don't take that day off in seven, you work seven days a week and you will drop. Because the world takes. And God gives. And you need to take that time because of God. In fact, I read in Exodus 35 that when God gave the instruction to build his tabernacle, that he might dwell among his people, he also enforced the Sabbath. He says, if anybody does any work, he's going to be cut off. So any zealous Jew who wants to build the tabernacle, and I really want to keep spinning thread, and I really want to keep making all the bits and bobs, I'll work seven days a week because I'm so zealous for God. God says, knock it off. If you really mean business, keep the Sabbath holy. There's something more important here than even God getting his own tent. You seek first the kingdom of God in your finances. It says in Proverbs 3, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now this is a promise of God. And it's honoring to the Lord. And I realized when I was dealing with a bunch of guys about this scripture, Matthew 6, that's why I tithe. Because it's honoring to the Lord. And I know there's lots of controversy about this. And this is Calvary Chapel, so we shouldn't even say the M word. Money. We just don't say it very well. But you know what? A lot of people's finances are messed up because their priorities are wrong. And it's an interesting spiritual thing that if you give God that tenth, he takes the 90% and does something insane with it. Did you know you don't get a miracle till you need one? And if you're obeying God, you can expect one. Did I just say that? Listen, Elijah goes to a widow in a famine and says, can I have a drink of water? Oh, and by the way, make me a cake. She goes, you know what? I got a little bit of flour left in the bag and I got this little bit of oil. I was just going to make some food for me and my son so we can eat it and die. He says, make me one first. Is that cheek? Is that self-centeredness? No, it's putting God first. He says, this is the word of the Lord. As long as the famine is on, that sack is not going to run out. That little jar of oil is not going to run out until he breaks the famine. So what's the lady going to do? Widow with a son. And this guy from nowhere comes up and says, make me one first, thus says the Lord God. What do you do? She says, okay, calling your bluff. Here you go, Mr. Man of God, gonna make a cake, frying it up. There you go, gonna go back to the sack. What do you know? There's a little bit left in there. There was always a little bit left in there. That becomes the household joke. Make me a cake. Not a problem. There's a little bit left. Har, har, har. <laughs> you put God first and there's order and he's going to take care of you. And I remember the first time I started doing this tithing thing and I thought, well, I'm going to die. There's faith for you. Claim it. I thought, well, if I die, I die. I die under the mighty hand of God. But you know, that was 45 years ago. And if you'll notice, I'm still around. <laughs> Haven't died yet. And I've been through scrapes, and I've worried. I have worried. And I didn't have to. And I've repented every time and said, you know what? You're better than I have a right to expect. I'm so sorry. 
I remember one month I had support that was the lowest support. I was a missionary, and I still am. It's the lowest support in five years. I mean, it was scary. And I had airfare bills to pay on my credit card and stuff. I mean, you have to do it when you're a missionary. And I showed the support total to my wife. I said, what do you think? She goes, oh, we need a miracle. And I go, good thinking, babe. Ah, what was I thinking? Of course we need a miracle. That solves everything. Keep thinking, pal. And you know, that month, money came in from all over. I cannot explain it. I was even given a car that month. A Volvo Turbo estate wagon, Swedish Cadillac, blue leather interior. Now, I'm not a whacked-out faith guy, okay? I am a missionary in fear and trembling. I can't explain it. All I know is I'm still here 45 years later, okay? So I believe what God says, and I've proved it with my body, and you can bring order to your finances by honoring God first. Do you see that? Something else you can do is just seek God for what he wants you to do with your life. I've seen people agonize about their profession and, and apply all over the place and try to get a job to get out of the cesspool that they're working in. And you know what I say? I say, ask God, what does he want? Because what he wants, he will also provide. So what would happen if you threw the door open and just said, whatever you want, anything you want, satisfy my heart. I don't care how you satisfy my heart. That's up to you. But as long as you satisfy my heart, please do that. Why not? Now, the main requirement for humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God is to know him. You can't trust somebody you don't know. And you might know about God, but that still is not enough. You've got to know him. So, how do you know God? The only way I, I can ever imagine is Again, through his word, because it's there in black and white. And he will be faithful to fulfill his word. That's why you plant it in you to make it a part of you. It's not this academic exercise of memorizing scriptures and you can tick the boxes or whatever kind of... It's not playing around. This is learning Christ. And to the extent that you do not humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that's how much you don't know him. So you can say to yourself, okay, I'm sorry, God, I don't know you. Will you please reveal yourself to me? Will you please speak to me? Have you ever had that experience where you're reading in your Bible and something practically leaps off the page at you, and you understand it, and you feel like God is talking to you? Have you ever had that experience? Don't you wish it could happen every day? Wouldn't that be phenomenal? So you feel like, whoa, I'm getting to know Christ. Well, you can do that every day. It's an exercise called biblical meditation. And it's designed by God so that you do really get to know him. So take a part of the scripture and meditate on it. Think on it deeply. I, I wrote a book, and it's got a chapter on how to meditate. And I, I rarely remember in time to suggest this to people, but... Today, I'll give the book to anybody who wants it if you will read chapter 9 because that's the money chapter on how to meditate. 
because I would love to connect you up with God so that you know that you know God and you're growing and you're learning Christ and then you can trust him. Because God cares about you. That's verse seven. That's the most important thing. Here you are. You're casting yourself upon God. You're doing like a stage dive. Do you know what a stage dive is? This is where you're at a big performance and the big heavy dude playing his guitar throws his guitar off and falls backwards over the stage and the people on the floor catch him. And then they pass him around on the floor and he's just on his back and all these hands pass him around on the floor and it's really cool. Well, this is what we're doing. We're doing a stage dive with God. Hope he's there. But guess what? He is there because he cares for you. He cares for you. He cares for you more than you care about yourself and you thought you were Olympic quality narcissist. Well, he cares for you more because he's God and he laid down his life for you. That shows he means business and he's not going to lose you because it's not acceptable for a parent to lose one child. Ask any parent, well, got four there, which one do you want to lose? No sane parent is going to answer that question. Not one. It's not acceptable to lose one. That's the way God thinks about you. Lose John Brown? Not thinkable. We're not going there. Not going to lose him. I'll break his legs. <laughs> In Jesus' name, amen. But I'm not going to lose him. Because it does say, you have disciplined me severely. You have not handed me over to death. That's right. God is your heavenly father. Come over here. Let's have a little discipline here. Because I love you. I'm going to share my holiness. Did you hear my voice? In love. Yes, he will. He cares for you. He cares for you. Maybe meditate on that one first. And just ask him, how much do you care for me? And he's going to show you. His loving kindness is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, on those who remember his commandments to do them. What do we know about everlasting love? Have you ever experienced everlasting love? Paul says, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled up to the fullness of God. Now that is a legal experience that you can have. Have you ever had that? You may have that, and then you're going to know he cares for you. He cares for you, and he's not going to let you down. Remember when Paul wrote about the thorn in his flesh? And he prayed three times that God would take this thing away from him? I could do so much more without this spike in my body. And on the third time, God says to him, no, I like you weak and dependent upon me. And Paul says, I get it. It's okay now because I want that power of Christ to rest upon me. So, you know, difficulties and persecutions and weakness and weariness, exhaustion. It's okay because when I receive his grace, it is sufficient for me and that's good. When I'm weak, I'm strong. So you can come to God and humble yourself under his mighty hand. 
say, I can't do this. Will you do this in me? And he will, because he did it with Jesus. And if he did it, you can do it. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you do show mercy and grace to the humble. There's no reason why you should bless us. We haven't done anything to deserve it. And yet we believe that you sent Jesus to die for our sins. And we do pray that we would know that love of Christ. Please satisfy us early with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Even pour out your spirit right now and communicate to us your love. Thank you that it's okay to confess to you that we do not have what it takes. We thank you, Lord, that you are making us like Christ. We want to humble ourselves under your mighty hand. Please glorify Jesus in us. Commit ourselves into your hand, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.